The History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening on this week's programme. American GIs in Belfast during the Second World War. Simon Topping on the little-known history of the American presence in Northern Ireland. Also, the Irish all around us. Cathy Scuffle on the Irish-derived words we use in everyday life, often without even knowing it. But we begin this evening with a murder mystery, a re-examination of a controversial historical case that divided the British and Irish press 170 years ago. It involves a couple on holiday, a professional artist and his wife, a keen and adventurous swimmer. The case is the subject of the new book, Death on Ireland's Eye, the Victorian murder trial that scandalised a nation. The author is Dean Ruxton. He spoke to our reporter, Colm Flynn. This is a story of a woman called Maria Kirwan. Maria Kirwan was, as a person, seems like she made friends easily. In the context of the story, she was married to a man named William Burke Kirwan. You know, well-to-do, and around the time we're going to talk about, they had decamped from sort of like what was described variously as a lavish kind of Marion Street mansion at one point to Hoth for the summer months. And she would become, you know, one of the most talked about people in the country. And you mentioned her husband, William Burke Kirwan. On the face of it, an upstanding member of society? Um, I mean, ostensibly, maybe, but in reality, probably not. A guy whose character and professional baggage and personal baggage would become really central to, to any discussion about him, about his wife, about what would happen. Allegations of his relationships and his his marital situation, let's say. The year is 1852, and the setting for this story is the island of Ireland's Eye, just north of Hoth in Dublin. Ireland's Eye is a little island just sort of north of the harbour, overlooks the harbour. Anyone who's been there will, will, will know the island, um, quite sort of untouched, you know, some interesting old ruins. It was the 6th of September in 1852, and for the most part, it was a nice day with scattered showers. West, southwest wind, not too windy. A bit of a breeze, showers, it had rained a bit. That day, William Kirwan and Maria Kirwan went to Ireland's Eye. They hired a boat from um, a small crew of fishermen who also ferried people over and back to the island. They went over about 10 a.m. And they arranged for the guys to come back to pick them up at about 8 p.m. And this was something they'd done before. Um, typically, Maria would walk the island and do some swimming and uh, William would sketch the surroundings. On the face of it, it was going to be just, just another day. It was at the end of the day when the boatsmen returned at 8 p.m. to collect the couple, they noticed William Burke was on his own. They found Maria missing. It was just... It was just William up on the rock. And it was Mick Nangle, uh, reportedly, who said first, you know, um, where's Maria? Where's, where's the wife? William told the boatsmen that he'd been separated from his wife during a rain shower and he couldn't find her. Immediately, a search of the island got underway and it wasn't long until the gruesome discovery was made. They found Maria dead out of sight of the harbour, kind of, kind of to the south, kind of to the east, in a place called the Long Hole which is kind of a bleak, rocky, shingly part of of the island, a little inlet, where people didn't normally swim, especially not women. 
Dean, are there any accounts recorded of what William Burke's reaction was like when he met the fishermen and told them that his wife was missing and then to the discovery? It's a huge point of contention, really. One reading of it is he wasn't concerned at all and it had to be, you know, the fisherman who said, where's the wife? Another one, his own, said that he said it first. And when they found the body, now, again, it depends on what you choose to believe, but when they found the body, he, he cried, he fell, he wailed, you know. Some people said very clearly an act. Some people said very clearly a natural reaction of, of a man finding his, his wife dead. This is a reoccurring theme in this mystery. Contradicting details and accounts of what happened on that day on the island. A, a lot of this story and about, uh, you know, trying to piece it together is about contradictions that there are huge inconsistencies in the story which made it actually very challenging to put together <laughs> because the first thing you do is you, is you go okay what's the what's the undisputed version of events or something close to it something rendering the story in clarity and that just doesn't exist here the initial investigation was over quite quickly and the cause of death was concluded as accidental death by drowning and maria kirwan was buried in glasnevin cemetery there was some suspicion at the time, you know, William came back and his legs were very wet, which need to waste high fern and vegetation on the island. But also, you know, he was sitting there and it was a, a local uh, sergeant named um, Sherwood who observed this first, that his trousers were dripping. He took his stockings off to dry them by the fire while they were preparing his wife's body next door and in the next room, I should say. It was declared, you know, accidental drowning. And that was sort of it. It was after Maria had been buried that hushed whispers and rumours about her husband, William Burke, began to get louder. Stories began to circulate about William. Allegations and stories came out that he had an entire secret life with a second woman, with children, all in Dublin, which will give you a motive. Um, obviously intolerable in terms of the sensibilities of sort of Victorian Ireland and especially the kind of the class he occupied. And how much that came to bear versus the actual provable, demonstrable facts of the case, is at the core of a debate that was volcanic at the time, that was bitter. Now the spotlight was firmly on William Burke, and a case was being built against him. For instance, various people reported hearing screams on the harbour from Ireland's eye. Reports said that there were people lining up saying they heard it from the Bailey Lighthouse, many kilometres away, over a lot of land. Various, you know, the times differ, the amount of shouts they heard differ, the tone and you know urgency of the shouts differ there's a cache of evidence from what the women who washed the body say they saw little tiny cuts surface cuts you know uh, various parts of her face and body at the time the coroner said they're probably crab bites other people said no they're not crab bites so there was quite a lot of circumstantial evidence but the thing with circumstantial evidence is it doesn't have to be no one piece has to be that compelling you know it's how they work together one month after being buried, Maria's body was exhumed and Dr. George Hatchell performed the post-mortem examination and in his report, when speculating if the drowning was accidental or not, he said it would be hazardous in conjunction with having an opinion on it. He said it would be hazardous for me to say either way. And that is not what he said at trial. What he said at trial instead was, I have never seen the characteristics he mentioned in what he said was, quote, a simple drowning. It made an impact on the jury. In a letter written by the jury after the trial, they said that this is what most convinced them of the guilty verdict. And so William Burke 
was sentenced. William Burkeown was sent to Bermuda on transportation. He was sentenced to death originally, and then the death sentence was commuted to life, which was in itself a bit of controversy. And it was actually the one thing that the both sides agreed on. Why is he? Why is he? Why is he getting life? You know, because either he did it and he should be hanged, or he didn't do it and he should be set free. William Burke Kirwan spent a little over a quarter of a century in prison, spent largely between Spike Island in Cork and then Bermuda, before being released and fading into obscurity. Very little is known about the later years of his life. One report said he was Britain's oldest convict when he got out. It seems he kind of disappeared into the ether. One account says that he visited the island of Ireland's Eye one more time as a feebled, grey-haired man, returning to the scene of that terrible accident that took his wife, or the scene of his horrific murder. Most likely, no one will ever know. It, it, it's a murder mystery. The mystery isn't a murder and who committed it. It's a death and whether it was a murder. It's a sad, tragic, bleak death of a woman and whether she was murdered. That's the mystery. Colin Flynn was reporting there. He was talking to journalist Dean Ruxton about the trial and conviction of William Burke Kerwin for the murder of his wife, Maria Kerwin. You can find out more about this story in Dean's book, which conducts a new forensic analysis of the case and explores the idea that Burke Kerwin was perhaps wrongfully convicted. The book is called Death on Ireland's Eye, the Victorian murder trial that scandalised a nation. It's published by Gill Books. After the break, I'll be joined by Simon Topping to talk about American troops in Northern Ireland during World War II. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. After the attack on Pearl Harbour in 1941, which led to the United States formally entering World War II, the first place in Europe that American soldiers set foot was in Belfast. Seven weeks after Pearl Harbour, around 6,000 troops arrived. A second and much larger influx began in October 1943, peaking at 100,000 American GIs. Joining me this evening to talk about this uh, overlooked aspect of World War II history is Dr Simon Topping, Associate Professor of United States History at Plymouth University. He's the author of the new book Northern Ireland, the United States and the Second World War, published by Blue. Bloomsbury, Simon, you're very welcome indeed to The History Show. Thanks for having me on. Tell us uh, a little bit, first of all, about this little-known topic in terms of the history of the Second World War and your own discovery of the story. Where did you first become interested in it? Well, I think uh, becoming interested in it is slightly different from learning about it. It's one of those uh, stories of Northern Ireland's history which is, it's always kind of bubbled under the surface so I was dimly aware of it and as a child there was a photograph of my father as a young man with an American GI uh, which sadly is now lost and even when I started looking at this topic that photograph didn't uh, come back to me until many years later. Now the genesis of this was actually looking at the New York Times index um, during the war for my PhD research and I thought I'd see if there were any references to Northern Ireland or Belfast. And I found a 50-word article in May 1944 about an American soldier who was executed for a murder he committed in Belfast. And that kind of piqued my interest. 
you know, that sense that I, I kind of knew about this, but didn't have any details. And then it turned out that the soldier was an African-American. And my background is as a civil rights specialist. So that interested me even further. And did you explore that aspect of the story or did you then move on to the to the wider aspect? It started off looking at the uh, the experience of African-American servicemen uh, in Northern Ireland during the war. So there had been some stuff done on the UK more generally, but this really intrigued me. Uh, this was Northern Ireland, indeed Ireland's first uh, interaction with a large group of, of people of colour. So I wanted to see what the responses were of the people of Northern Ireland to African-American soldiers, vice versa, whether welcomes or hostility crossed um, sectarian lines, and what the soldiers themselves thought about their experiences in Northern Ireland during the war. Okay, we'll come back to that particular topic, but who made the decision to use Northern Ireland as a base for American troops? Were there discussions between the uh, the American government, British government, and the Northern Ireland governments? Well, the uh, the Stormont was uh, not included in these discussions. So what we have is in early 1941, the Americans, the British, and indeed the Canadians talking about a hypothetical uh, stationing of US troops uh, somewhere in the United Kingdom. And this kind of accelerates after Lend-Lease, which is passed in the States in the spring of 1941. And by the summer of 1941, the Americans, under the guise of land lease and employed by the UK government, are building installations, particularly in Derry, uh, the Lisa Halley naval base in Derry. So this is done without without the consultation with the Northern Ireland government, but with its acquiescence. Um, now, the troops themselves, there are discussions uh, between Roosevelt and Churchill in the autumn of 1941. So this is before Pearl Harbor, and Churchill has suggested that Roosevelt send a battalion of American troops to garrison Northern Ireland. Uh, and of course, this would have been in violation of America's neutrality. The decision itself comes just before Christmas. So shortly after Pearl Harbor, Churchill goes to Washington, meets Roosevelt. They discuss strategy for the war in Europe. And Churchill suggests that uh, the Americans send troops to Northern Ireland in the first instance. The government of Northern Ireland is only formally told of this uh, maybe two weeks before the Americans arrive. Uh, the Prime Minister is summoned to London uh, and he's told that this is going to happen. And actually, far from being offended at not being consulted, uh, the government is delighted. It puts Northern Ireland at the centre of the war. It gives Northern Ireland a purpose and, of course, it, it emphasises Northern Ireland's difference from uh, neighbouring era. Now, I can imagine if the Northern Ireland government were not consulted, then the government of Eamon de Valera would not have been consulted either. But under the terms of the 1937 constitution, this was American troops on Irish soil. Did this cause de Valera difficulties? Did it impact on Ireland's neutrality? Did it was it was awkward for De Valera in that it it demonstrated the reality that the constitution extended only to the twenty six uh, counties rather than to Northern Ireland as well, and the British and the Americans knew that they had to inform De Valera at some stage. So the decision was taken to let him know either once the convoy was out of danger of U boats or that the convoy was known about by the Germans. So it's only really when 
the landing is imminent that the British representative in Dublin uh, informs De Valera. Now, De Valera issues a protest. He calls it a statement, but it's uh, because had it been a, a formal protest, then this could have triggered a diplomatic incident. So he issues a statement saying that he should have been consulted, that it was known that Ireland was a single state and so on and so forth. So rehearsing the sort of arguments that were uh, very common for De Valera when referring to partition and to Northern Ireland. Now, the US representative in Ireland during this period, during the war period, was a man called uh, David Gray, the US minister to Ireland. And he would not have been de Valera's biggest fan. He wouldn't have been Ireland's biggest fan either. Uh, The treaty ports were returned to Ireland with magnificent timing in 1938, just before the war began. Uh, Churchill tried and failed to get them back from de Valera. Did Gray think he was going to do any better? I think, yes, David Gray harboured many delusions when he was a US minister in Dublin. He thought that his job was actually to negotiate an end to partition, which was never part of his remit. And he thought that he could persuade de Valera to aid the Allies in some shape or form. So the bases are important in these calculations. But actually, once the US starts fortifying bases in Northern Ireland, the bases south of the border um, become largely irrelevant. They are there and used by Gray as a way of attacking de Valera, of exposing what he sees as, as the hypocrisies of Era's neutrality uh, during the war. Uh, but actually, strategically, certainly in the run-up to D-Day, the Allies didn't want the bases and they thought that they were more hassle than they were worth. They thought they, were, they would have been too difficult to defend had they acquired them. Uh, So the focus becomes Northern Ireland. And this is another benefit of the landing of the Americans for Northern Ireland, the fortification of Derry, um, the use of air bases for repair and so forth, or the use of the airboat bases in in Enniskillen, Belfast Dock, and so on and so forth. So I think the ports, certainly as the war progressed, become something of a red herring, but something which Grey can deploy against de Valera. Now, when we think about the Irish in America, our thinking tends to be very republic-centred. We think in terms automatically of the of the Catholic Irish. But the first emigrants, the first Irish emigrants to America, obviously were Ulster Irish. So did this have any impact on Northern Ireland's relationship with this influx of American troops? Yeah, what what we see is almost immediately as the Americans land, we see a kind of repurposing of traditional narratives on relations between Irish nationalists and the United States and unionists and the United States. So we quickly see the re-establishment or indeed the establishment of a kind of diasporic narrative where suddenly Ulster, as was, becomes America's oldest friend. Um, that we that unionist newspapers and particularly Presbyterian clergymen, uh, government ministers, are talking about the original Irish settlers, the people who left Ulster in the 17th and 18th centuries and settled in places like Pennsylvania. So what they're trying to do here is make a prior claim to American friendship. So long before the famine and the mass immigration, uh, which uh, resulted from the famine. Um, And what they're also doing is 
claiming a key role in the revolution. Now, obviously, there's a paradox here with um, people who are now unionists committed to the union with uh, Great Britain celebrating the first rebels, really, to <laughs> succeed in a revolt against the British. And there's a there's a lovely quote in the Belfast Telegraph on the 4th of July, 1942, which says, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but uh, into the reasons of this conflict, we need not detain ourselves. So there's this, this paradox of celebrating the Americans uh, and celebrating American independence without really going into details as to what it was about. But more interesting than that, in some respects, is that Ulster, Ulstermen, Ulster Protestants, particularly Presbyterians, not only claim a key role in the revolution. For example, George Washington said that his finest soldiers were Pennsylvania Ulstermen, but also in the philosophy which led to the Declaration of Independence. They see this as a, as a, a Presbyterian document or certainly um, with Presbyterian influence and that the most ardent revolutionaries were Presbyterians of Ulster stock. So there is an attempt to connect with this narrative and to use it to kind of put focus on Ulster's relationship and to kind of offset the, the more general Irish Catholic relationship with the United States. Now, approximately 6,000 troops, as I say, arrived in the in the first deployment. By the summer of 1942, that number had jumped to around 40,000. Did the Northern Ireland government lay out the red carpet for them? Yes, absolutely. Stormont was delighted to have American troops. Um, as I mentioned, it put Northern Ireland at the centre of the war. It was big news. But what happens in terms of uh, looking after the troops is that the Americans send the Red Cross and they want to try and keep enter the entertainment of the Americans in-house. Now, the Stormont, uh, led by Commerce Minister Sir Basil Brooke, who becomes Prime Minister in 1943, they attempt to create what they call hospitality committees. Uh, and this really accelerates over the second half of 1942. And these hospitality committees are often things like setting up a hall, um, whether it's a church hall or an orange hall, a village hall, whatever it is, so that there are entertainments for the Americans, you know, dances, this sort of thing. But at least in the first deployment, the Americans are keen to keep it in-house, but the practicalities are that they have to cooperate with uh, with Stormont. Uh, with Americans going on leave and you know the problems that they cause, there needs to be cooperation between the Red Cross, the military and the government. Given that the Unionist establishment welcomed the US troops with open arms, does that mean that the Nationalist establishment didn't? At least initially. Uh, what happens is that de Valera uh, makes his protest and nationalist politicians in Northern Ireland echo it. So we have got a couple of Stormont MPs from Derry who fully support De Valera. One called Maxwell compares the Americans to the Germans occupying France or Norway and says that the government, the Irish government, should have been consulted. Um, he also talks about we're not able to throw out the Americans, otherwise we would, uh, and we're, go we're going to ignore them. So the stance of nationalist politicians is really to say nothing. And that's kind of what happens for the for most of the war. They say very little about the American presence. And I think this is because it's not going to play well in America. That criticism of the Americans is criticism of the American cause 
and also the American sacrifice. So nationalists on both sides of the border, generally speaking, stay quiet about it uh, with the view that once the war is over, then they can reconnect with Irish America and they can uh, launch an anti-partition campaign in America. And this is really what happens um, not long after the end of the war. How does the IRA respond? Uh, well, the IRA's response is a campaign which begins in the spring of 1942. So there have been IRA campaigns south of the border and in England, which had failed and there have been internments and executions south of the border. And the campaign which begins around about Easter 1942 is directly linked to the Americans. However, this doesn't really become clear until the summer. There are a few incidents where there are people arrested crossing the border with letters asking for information about the American forces. But during the summer, tensions are reasonably high in Northern Ireland for the impending execution of an IRA member for the murder of a policeman. And uh, during this kind of crisis, a manifesto is discovered in an arms dump, which talks about the Americans. Now, the manifesto is kind of bombastic. It's about, we'll fight the Americans if they join in on the side of the British and so on and so forth. And it's more for, I think it's more for rhetorical purposes than any real threat. I can't find anything to suggest that on duty, American soldiers were attacked, that there were attempts to steal arms or anything like that. But you do have attacks off duty on American soldiers under the cover of the blackout. Now, sometimes these were by Republicans, sometimes they were claimed by Republicans. But what happens is that the Unionist press and Stormont are happy to play this up, this idea that the IRA are the enemies of uh, Stormont and they're also the enemies of the Americans and that they're a threat to the war effort. Uh, and this causes a good deal of concern for the US consulate in Belfast and Gray in Dublin. Is there an implication that American troops would defend Northern Ireland from a German invasion from the south if that were to happen? Yes, uh, I think what we see with this is that there are a number of reasons for the deployment to Northern Ireland. Uh, so the Battle of the Atlantic is crucial. American troops can train in Northern Ireland and the British troops that are stationed there can go to North Africa. Now, in theory, American troops could have gone anywhere in the UK. But one of the advantages in sending them to Northern Ireland is a hypothetical invasion of the South. Now, this would be to repel a German invasion of the uh, of the south coast and the thinking was that american troops would be welcome whereas british troops even in response to german invasion might not there is at one point uh de valera in an informal communication with um, uk and possibly even stormont officials suggests using australian or canadian troops to garrison Northern Ireland in case of a, a German invasion. So the sense is that American troops would be made welcome and, and this would overcome a tricky diplomatic situation. And then how did ordinary people respond to the arrival of all these American troops? Did life change for the ordinary citizens? I mean, one thinks of the impact of GIs in the in England, in the in the south of England, for example, they were, uh, you know, they were uh, very very healthy and uh, quite wealthy, certainly by comparison with the locals. 
Yeah, the overpaid, oversexed, overhaired stereotype applies in North You said Ireland. it, not me. <laughs> yeah, I had, to, I had to go in somewhere. Um, yeah, it applies in Northern Ireland. Uh, now, obviously, things are complicated by sectarian divisions, and you have a, a, a rhetorical hostility towards the Americans from Catholic or nationalist uh, population. But the Ministry of Information did a survey in June 1942, so this this is quite early on, which discovered that uh, nationalists welcomed, ordinary nationalists welcomed the Americans. Uh, and also, actually, that the, the welcome was as, was as hearty in nationalist areas as it was in uh, unionist areas. The Ministry of Information said that the Americans were just really difficult people to dislike. Um, it also discovered that hostility was highest where there were no Americans stationed. Um, there's an additional factor here is that many Americans were stationed west of the band, so they were stationed in areas which often had uh, majority Catholic populations. So there are problems which are going to come uh, with the Americans. The Americans couldn't hold their drink. They were chasing the women. They committed casual criminality. Uh, there were also problems about what would happen if an American killed a civilian. Would this have an impact if um, Americans killed a nationalist civilian as opposed to a unionist civilian? But the, the welcome seems to be broadly positive on both sides of the community. Let's go back to where this, to some extent, began for you, the experience of African-American soldiers in Northern Ireland. They were coming from a segregated society into essentially another segregated society. Were they treated any differently by the people? Did they suffer racism while they were in Northern Ireland? The experience of African-Americans is broadly positive. Uh, soldiers write letters home about how welcome they are. They are, one said, the Irish treat us as if we are one of them. Um, they're popular with the girls. Uh, they appreciate being treated well by a white society. Uh, which many of them haven't experienced before. And black soldiers also have a reputation for politeness. Uh, and they're much better behaved than white soldiers. And there doesn't seem to be any correlation between their oppression and Northern Ireland's own Jim Crow system. For From the perspective of um, Catholics and nationalists, they're part of this, quote, occupying force that has come in. So... They don't come together in terms of their, their shared, if different, uh, oppression. Now, where racism's concerned, uh, there was there was clearly some. There is a, a letter at Prony from a black serviceman who talks about not being able to go out into Belfast because they get called uh, racist names. They're afraid to go out at night. And most of the problems they face come from white GIs. You know, there, there's there's quite a bit of violence, usually instigated by white GIs against African-Americans. So that's, and if anything, that's the big problem that African-American GIs face, uh, with not just in Northern Ireland, but uh, throughout the UK. Now, by the summer of 1944, with the invasion of Europe, there was a huge clear out of these soldiers, obviously. Uh, what was the impact of their departure on Northern Ireland politically and economically? Well, in terms of the war, uh, Northern Ireland reverted to being a backwater. Some US forces stayed behind, so there were uh, bomber repair bases, aircraft repair bases, which stayed, and obviously the naval installations remained. 
The impact, I think, is is very short term. It doesn't make Northern Ireland a more liberal society. It doesn't ease sectarian divisions in Northern Ireland. It makes the state perhaps a little less, little less insular in that Stormont starts to look beyond London and the empire and starts to look to perhaps try and create an informal bilateral relationship with the United States. Now, this this doesn't really happen uh, to any great extent. Um, the country is perhaps a little less conservative as a consequence of the war. But the American presence in the UK generally has been described by another historian as an interlude. So this sense that it's a temporary expedient to win the war. And once the war is won, we will go back to normal. Obviously, you can never go back to normal. And the, the changes that come about in Northern Ireland after the war, I think, are more to do with things such as the the beverage plan and the introduction of the NHS and uh, the Education Act. And these, these things, I think, are much more transformative uh, than the American presence. There's also an idea that the war brings Northern Ireland closer to the rest of the UK. So the experience of the Blitz, the experience of rationing, the experience of casualty figures and the experience of hosting the Americans draw Northern Ireland closer to the rest of the UK and increase the schism uh, between Northern Ireland and ERA. Uh, and this, I think, is felt across the border as well uh, in terms of the impact that the war has. ERA is, uh, is, uh, asserts its independence through its neutrality um, during the war, which in- increases the divisions between the two states. Before we finish, uh, somebody who's always intrigued me, what became of the unlovable, at least from an Irish perspective, David Gray? He has an afterlife. Uh, he manages to stick around until 1947. And De Valera wanted him out in 1941, uh, about a year after he arrived. He stays in touch with some Stormont officials, um, plus the UK minister. In Dublin, actually, he also befriends uh, John Betjeman, who was a UK <laughs> official in Dublin. Well-known spy. Um, yes, uh, who actually who would sometimes sign his letters to Gray um, as Sean O'Betjeman. He would sort of <laughs> do a kind of fake Gaelicisation of his name, uh, and they stayed in touch. He comes back into the picture in the late nineteen fifties with his memoir, this massive memoir that he was writing, which is essentially a diatribe against Irish independence, against Sinn Féin, and particularly against De Valera. So you have this 300,000-word manuscript, which nobody wants to publish, but somehow Stormont get their hands on it. They're still in correspondence with Gray. Um, They're aware that he's having trouble uh, finding a publisher with this. So... Stormont offers to take over the project on the quiet. Uh, Stormont official edits the uh, manuscript, gets it down to, oh, I can't remember the, the word count, maybe 70 or 80,000 words. But Gray refuses to publish in anything other than its complete form. <laughs> now, Stormont did have some issues with this. Uh, it was circulated in secret among Stormont ministers, including future Prime Minister Brian Faulkner, and one official uh, called A.J. Kelly said that, that Stormont should not go near this, that it was a diatribe, it was subject to satire, it just reflected uh, Gray's bitterness. But despite this, they secured a publisher 
uh, on the basis that Stormont would buy a thousand copies for a, a guinea each, which I think was about a pound each. And this is in the early 60s. But Gray refused. And the manuscript ended up at the University of Wyoming in its collections. And Gray died in the late 1960s. And this was never, this was not published until a few years ago. Uh, Paul Bew did a, an edited version of it, a small section of it. <laughs> a gentleman with no difficulties, whatever, with self-esteem, uh, David Gray. Um, for anyone who wants to know more about Gray and the little-known story of those uh, two years in which American troops were based in Northern Ireland in huge numbers, you'll find all of that and more in Northern Ireland, the United States and the Second World War. The book is published by Bloomsbury and is available from their website, bloomsbury.com. The author is Dr. Simon Topping. Simon, thank you very much indeed for talking to us on The History Show. Thank you for having me. After the break, Cathy Scuffle joins me to talk about the Irish all around us, the Irish-derived words that we use in everyday life. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. The Irish language is one of the oldest living languages in Europe, and while many of us don't speak it on a daily basis, you might not realise the extent to which we use Irish words or words derived from Irish in everyday life. Historian Cathy Scuffle has been giving talks on this subject recently, and uh, Cathy joins me now. Cathy, you're very welcome to The History Show. Thank you very much, Miles. Delighted to be here. The title of the talk is Gwelga Chimpul Oring, which means Irish all around us. What made you decide to look into the topic? What prompted your interest? Well, I think during lockdown, people were trying to find different ways of uh, exploring the past. And one of the community groups that I've been working with, which is the Ballyfermot Festival Committee, they were commemorating Shakta Nagelga and doing it online. So they approached me and asked me, could I find some angle for them? And I would be like the uh, the majority of the population, my Irish would be a little bit shaky, but I have a, a fair idea of it. So I said I'd do something for them by looking at where we use Irish and we don't realise it. So it's really all credit to the group out in Ballyfermot and also a group in the Liberties who are trying to do something similar. OK, well, we'll talk later about the uh, the derivation of Ballyfermot we'll come, we'll, itself. We'll come back to that. Um, there are words that people might think are English but are actually derived from Irish. Some surprises that you've come across. There are indeed. Now, for example, you've heard people use the phrase galore. So galore actually is an Irish word meaning plenty. We use it in, in, in phraseology and we use it in, in everyday language. I have another one as well. You, you hear people say a slew of things. Well, that comes from the Irish word slua, which means plenty. And of course, brogues, uh, a very highly fashionable item. And it, it's so obvious that it's from the Irish word brogue for shoe. I particularly love it when I hear our American colleagues using the phrase smithereens. And then I start thinking about, wonder, that's definitely one of ours. And of course it is smithereeny, uh, meaning little bits. So there were a lot of little words that we were, we were using in everyday language. Um, the word slogan 
used for all our marketing events and things like that comes from Slua Gurum, which was a battle cry used by the Gaelic clans. So uh, we're not joking when we're trying to rally people around marketing. And then, of course, Banshee. Uh, the children in the Liberties often tell me stories about the Banshee. And of course, that's the Banshee, the fairy woman. So we, we have words that we use. They're there and they are definitely Irish words. You've just given us some smashing examples. I have given you some smashing examples and there's another word for you Miles uh, it's my shin is smashing all put together for us so yes it, they are smashing examples it's my shin um, no I, I probably shouldn't say this word it's certainly not politically correct or appropriate in this day and age but still I'm sure widely used in, in Dublin and that's the word mot when uh, relating uh, to somebody's girlfriend where does that come from? Oh, it's still plenty of uh, use of the word mot, uh, whether it's politically correct or not. And again, it's an Irish phrase. Mahon Colleen, a good girl. A good girl was your girlfriend. So Mahon Colleen. So when me and me mot, as one of the lads might say, are going out together, he's going out with his good girl, his girlfriend. A big part of your research in the subject is on place names. And you've been looking specifically at Dublin. But I mean, obviously, this can be applied universally all over the country. And it's absolutely fascinating. There are many place names in Dublin, which maybe we wouldn't have expected quite so much, that are derived from a description of the landscape. Oscar there are, and there are three that are very close together in the area of Dublin that I've been working in. Uh, Drimna, Crumlin and Kimmich are all Irish phrases describing the landscape. So if we take Drimna first, the Rumnach, the sandy ridges, the end of the mountain range, the, the hills coming into Dublin. So the sandy ridges of Drimna, Drumnach. Um, I mentioned Crumlin. Well, Crumlin is Crumglinna, the Crooked Glen. That's the Lansdowne Valley. So again, the Crumglinna was the Crooked Glen, and we used the phrase Crumlin. And then just beside it, we've Kimmich, Kamishka, and that's our river puddle. So the clear water of the river puddle. We'll come back to the river puddle uh, because we have quite a bit to talk about there as well. Um, now, speaking of the suburbs, you there are mention a few of those for us. Bring us back to Ballyfermot, which was where all of this started for you, for example. Very much so. I mean, Bally is Bally. So any of our Ballys, not just Dublin, as you said, it's all around the country. Uh, Bally Fermat comes from Bally Dermot. Dermot being a Celtic chieftain, probably 4th century, really old name. But again, Bally Fermat, Bally Dermot. That's where that comes from. And close by to it, um, that beautiful little place, Chapel Isit, uh, down by the river, Chapel Isolde, the famous legend of Tristram and Isolde and Chapel, of course, is a church and Chapel quickly became chapel. So chapel is it. Let's talk Dublin rivers for a while and uh, tell us how the rivers in and around the, the Dublin area derive from, from Irish. Well, I'll give you two really good examples and they are describing themselves. How about our Dodder, the river Dodder? Uh, Dodder is on Dutra meaning turbulent, the Irish word for turbulent. So they weren't joking. I'm sure we've all seen the daughterhood has been particularly turbulent. And then on the tolka or on tolkra, meaning flood. So again, describing exactly what the rivers did. So they're two tributaries of the Liffey. 
and you can imagine if they're in full flight, they're causing turbulent floods and that's where their names came from. When the daughter is causing a turbulent flood, it's getting some help though, isn't it, from the puddle. Uh, how is that in any sense related to the Irish language? Uh, well, that, that's that's a really good one. And if we wanted to talk puddle, we could talk puddle all day here. <laughs> um, puddle comes from on Puchale. And on Puchale is an overflowing pot. So again, when the puddle decides to go into its flood, which it has done on so many occasions, it was doing exactly what it was called. It was acting like an overflowing pot and flooding the areas that it went through. So basically with the daughter, the puddle and the talca, there's nothing new under the sun. They flooded, uh, you know, mm. 1500 years ago, presumably as well. Now, there's a little street in Dublin tucked away behind John's Lane Church just off Thomas Street, and it's called Mullina Hack. Where does that lyrically sounding name come from? <laughs> sounds a bit made up, doesn't it? It does a bit, yeah. It sounds like it's got something to do with journalism, but obviously not. <laughs> no, it's not to do with journalism, but there's an idea. Um, really, again, we go back to the, the Gaelic in this one. Uh, Mullina, Mullion, it's a mill. So um, it's a mill on the end of the line of the river just before that particular stream or mill race discharged into the Liffey. Now, the Nahak is a slightly uh, different <laughs> an, uh, uh, explanation. And maybe we should wait till the programme's airing after nine o'clock to do the really graphic <laughs> description. Uh, but it, let's say it wasn't the cleanest mill on the line. So it's certainly the dirty mill. And you can use another word to describe dirty on another occasion. So Mullenach is... And that's, that's is, from Kaka. Kaka, exactly. That's exactly where it's from. Uh, so it's something that is expelled from the body at uh, at, at various times. Um, exactly, uh, and expelled colour. from lots of bodies, obviously. <laughs> and uh, this was the very end of the line. So this is the dirtiest mill on the line. But we still have the place name, Mullinahack. And Irish is not the only language where caca means what uh, we've just suggested, <laughs> exactly. suggested it means. Uh, so so in, in many cases, then, our street names or places are literal translations mm of the original Irish word, but that's not always the case. For example, Dolphin's Barn has nothing to do with dolphins. Uh, Maribone Lane has nothing to do with Maribone. Explain where they come from. Here are two great examples. So Dolphin's Barn, the Irish variation is on Carnon or Carnon Cluck. So that comes from a burial mound that was located in the general area, a landmark used for marking out the boundaries of the city. So we still use on Carnon on the bus signs, for example, or in the post office stamp. The old name is used there. The Dolphin's Barn is a different thing altogether. It relates to a knight who was granted lands in the area, a David Dolphin. The barn might refer to a barren, a river. And then later on, the barn itself became the local church. So it was a penal church. So we have all sorts of variations within that. So, you know, one small street sign can have a very, very long history to explain uh, you mentioned Marabone, Marabone Lane. Uh, oh, we get mileage out of this one because it's so interesting. Marabone Lane, in order to work out what it means, you need to look at the Irish on the street sign. So it's Lana Wira Wa, put there by Dublin City Council. So it's really a connection with Our Lady or Good Lady. It's, it's a religious uh, term. And this brings us to our Huguenot community who 
we're in the area French speaking. So in one sign, we have French, we have Anglicized French, Dublinese French, and we have Irish. So Lana Wirawa, Marabone Lane should actually be Marie Le Bon Lane. So it's, it's a beautiful description of our history in one street sign. Anna Simul Erfad, Kathy. I think you've shown us that Irish is definitely all around us. And uh, I'd suggest that when anybody is out, not just in Dublin, but around the country, the street signs are uh, hopefully street signs in your town have been translated uh, into into Irish and you can have a look and you can try and guess at where at the origin of where this where this comes from some of them are absolutely fascinating so a smashing uh, insight into our native language Cathy Scuffle is a Dublin City Council historian in residence uh, Cathy many thanks uh, for joining us this evening Gormila Mahagat Ismahishin Miles Gormagat That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items as well as podcasts are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Tommy O'Sullivan on sound and our researcher Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening. And thank you very much indeed, Miles Dungan and the team there on The History Show. And also you can listen back to The History Show and indeed to all of our programmes here on RTE Radio 1 by just logging on to the website rte.ie forward slash radio or going to our podcast section as well. Each programme has its own podcast section. It's at rte.ie forward slash podcasts.